Hi, Pastor Adam here, and we are in a new month. We are still talking about the pride of life, but we're shifting focus to sexual identity and gender, how the culture seeks to accost what it means to be a man, woman, or otherwise. God has clearly defined what it means to be man or woman and how we should sexually identify and embrace those two roles, not free to choose whatever we want to be. So look forward to more on this topic. And if you're interested in an introduction to sexual identity and gender, then this is the sermon for you. Okay, so good morning, guys, and good morning to the people streaming with us. So here I am back again. I almost had another five-week sermon month, but uh, as you guys know, we we interrupted um, we interrupted our our regular our regular scheduling um, to address a need. Um, so thank you guys for that. Thank you guys for your uh, flexibility and willingness to to be that um, as we spent time last week in prayer. And to the people that uh, missed us last week, that's what we were doing. We were spending time in prayer as a body. So, here we are. We're going to continue this month, uh, with, this month with, um, like I said, the, the continuing topic of pride of life when it comes to identity um, by introducing just another influential topic in our culture, um, and that is sexuality and gender. So that is what this month will be about, pride of life, sexuality, and gender as it relates to our identity and who we are how we identify. As Colin mentioned a couple months back, uh, there's a shift from what he was talking about then um, when he was talking about um, sexuality. He was talking about the sex part of sexuality and how we should understand that um, in the context of God. But uh, what we're talking about this month is identity, gender, um, gender identity, sorry, and how um, that has become one of the primary markers for um, ultimate um, identity and purpose um, in the lives of people today, in the world today. So, gender identity is a big social and cultural issue that has come to dominate, you know, our headlines, our channels, our streaming content, uh, our social media feeds. You know, you can't escape the topic, you know, in any, any one of those things. All the different... Um, platforms for discussing cultural things are trying to speak into it. You know, you see headlines on your, your news apps if you use about gender identity and the latest person that has come out to explore their new gender identity, you know, whether it's an Olympic athlete. I just saw one this week. It was a, it was a Canadian women's soccer player, you know, as, as a headline in the news. Canada won the gold medal, women's team won the gold medal, and that was, that was the headline, you know, like that uh, this, this woman that's identifying as a man now is, has come out and how, how glorious that is and how, how important it is for things moving forward. So you can't escape it. You know, there's, there's TV shows on your streaming, your streaming platforms, on Netflix and stuff that are always trying to address those things. So how should we think about those things? That's, that's what the question we keep talking about this month when we're talking about discernment, right, and sacrifice and what we're willing to give up in our, in our mindset and what we're willing to acknowledge and what we're willing to compare with the world around us with what scripture has to say. Um, so that's going to be the basis of this month. Um, what's the biblical position on sexuality and gender identity? 
um, with what we see? How can we better understand our relationship with God and how we're created, biologically created to be, and the significance of that versus the uh, versus where it's gone? Let's just say that. So today will be an introduction into that, and then for the coming weeks we'll talk about um, more specifics in that. Uh, so today's an introduction. It won't be hard to catch you all up to speed um, on on uh, on how things are, since we live in one of the most sexually progressive cities in the country. Certainly, um, probably top three or something. Top top five, definitely, um, in the country. Probably Seattle and San Francisco, maybe New York. You know, maybe they're a little bit ahead of us. But Portland is definitely up there in terms of its cultural progression in all things, certainly, certainly in sexual identity. Um, probably one of the top cities in the world, quite frankly, when it comes to this specific issue. Um, we're fascinated with the notion that um, we can be autonomous. That means we choose, you know, we choose. We have the freedom of choice to do A, B, C, X, Y, Z, whatever, and any number of things. We can be autonomous in defining our however we want to as a society. <clears throat> so just to, you know, maybe for the younger, the younger people who are listening in our, in our sermon today, sexual identity refers to the labeling that occurs when a person designates themselves, that means declares themselves, um, as any number of things, gay, straight, bisexual, curious, um, bi-curious, questioning, fluid, uh, non-binary, that means not one of two things, right? Man or woman, not one of those two things. And the list goes on. You know, the, the acronym that the, this group of people use is literally called LGBTQIA, and then there's a plus at the end because it's an infinite number of things that you can identify as, right? Um, and to, to not have the plus at the end of their acronym, um, to not allow it be unlimited would be, you know, oppressive. Right? It would be oppressive. It would be missing the point. Your, your identity, your sexual identity should be whatever you want it to be. That's what the culture has to say. LGBTQIA+. Um, yeah. <clears throat> I want to start by saying it's a statistical fact. It just is that people who identify outside of the biblically normative sexual markers are a minority group of people. Okay? That means people who choose to identify as LGBTQIA+, that's not normal despite what they would have you believe. That's still a very minor group of people. And that seems to be a, a thing with, with the culture, right? It's a minor group of people with um, a loud voice that want to make it seem like it's more normal than it actually is. But that's not true. It's a statistical fact that it's a minority group of people. And I would say... It's, a spiritual, it's of spiritual significance that um, the same group of people um, leads a crusade to turn their minority belief, their unnormative belief, into a normative standard for how we should identify. Okay? They are seeking to change the way we think about things aggressively. That's why they're loud about it. And that's with, like I said, a lot of cultural issues. They want to be loud about it because they want to change what we think or believe is normative, certainly biblically normative. Um, how we should identify, how we're encouraged to identify. Um, we should be 
sensitive to not hurt the feelings of someone who, who does identify outside of the biblically normative thing. This is, this is what the loud group of people wants you to believe. And there seems to be this idea in culture um, that, and, and, and within the church even, that you know, we need to be nice about these things. We need to be careful not to offend. Don't hurt the feelings. Thou shalt not hurt your feelings of your neighbor as if it's some sort of lost commandment by Moses, right? That's not true. Well, people like that. Um, the world has been in the process of becoming this sea of eggshells that we're um, told to not step on. You know, careful not to step on this person's truth or that person's truth, how this person identifies, this person's feelings, and so on. If we do, we are an oppressor. We are an oppressive member of society. The buzzword is we are an enemy of the culture rather than an ally. So these taken these, they've taken these terms that are you know, significant and historically have a specific uh, meaning, but, and they've, they've, they've made you bad or good depending on where you stand with the culture's standards, right? And whether or not you, you tow, and not just tow, but promote the cultural you know, line, the, pro the cultural progressive train. If you don't or are not willing to submit to that, then you are an enemy. Um, it's a buzzword that I have a real beef with. <laughs> the culture has taken these words um, and, and just really eroded the meaning, ally, um, ally and enemy. We're in being indoctrinated into this untenable worldview, uh, and we practice it regularly. And you might be wondering, like, well, how do I practice that regularly? Um, we do it by keeping our mouth shut, because it's just easier to do that. It's just easier to keep my mouth shut, to not offend that person, um, so on and so forth. It doesn't really affect me. It's just easier. And that's, that's what we tell ourselves. That's how we justify it to ourselves in everyday lives, right, in relationships with people and so on. When we, when we read these stories and these headlines and these articles or whatever, when we see these things, ah, it doesn't really affect me. But that's the problem. <laughs> that's the problem is... There hasn't been a defender of truth in these cultural things. For too long, people, the church specifically, has not been willing to stand for what is true. And we've allowed, we've allowed the battlefield to be taken over by postmodernism. We don't want to ruffle feathers. Best to just let that person live their truth. Um, doesn't really affect me. I know I'm not that. That's what we tell ourselves. But this is a great, this is a great mistake. It has, does, or will affect you. And if it doesn't affect you, it definitely will affect your kids. And we'll talk about that in just a second. The implications and consequences in a worldview like this that cares so little about the body, the physical body, um, will be dire if we're being like that, if we're not willing to defend truth, if we're not willing to be who we're called to be when it comes to that, and the responsibility that comes with being defenders, watchmen, um, watchmen's, Watchmen's for truth. <laughs> um, we have a responsibility through our relationships and conversations with people to stay true to what we know is how God created things to be and to not submit to anything else. Stay true to the value that God created man and women to be and the roles that come with that. Again, in relationships with your peers and coworkers and family members and friends and any other group you find yourselves in on a regular basis. 
when you walk out of this church. How do you practice this is the question you should be asking yourself and thinking about. Do you practice the, the keepeth thy mouth shut so I don't hurt feelings, you know, the lost commandment of Moses, so I don't offend? Do you practice that? And what steward of truth are you being when you engage in that discipline, when you just want to be silent because it's just easier that way? And then there's a threat uh, that we have to consider of what will be taken away if we're not willing to toe that line that cultural line, if we don't climb aboard that cultural train. Keep my mouth shut so I don't lose my job, my friends, money, or tax exemption status. That's a real thing. That's a real thing that is threatened to the church, that if we're not willing to tow a cultural line in any number of things, then we could lose a tax exemption status. And so there's these, there's these real threats in our, each of our lives and in our, our lives as a collective that we have to consider, but well, where are we going to stand um, in truth um, if we don't if we don't toe that line? What are we willing to give up, you know, um, to fit into the mold of an aggressive worldview that seeks to redefine sexual identity into a choose-your-own-adventure game? That's what it's become. <clears throat> but creation, guys, creation is where. Um, the problem comes when we let our freedom, freedom um, and liberty get the best of us. When it runs rampant, when it runs unchecked, freedom of choice and idleness of the mind, um, idleness of thought untethered from God and trust and faith in his word is a dangerous thing for as long as man has existed. Look at Genesis chapter 3. Freedom of choice and idleness and unwilling to submit and unwilling to trust and a lack of faith in God has from the beginning of time be an issue, been an issue, sorry, that man has struggled with. And that's where we find the whole issue regarding sexual identity. It's an unwillingness to submit and trust in God. It's an idleness of thought. It's an it's a undisciplined and unwise use of freedom and so on. There's this funny thing I read. A fish that decides to make a radical bid for freedom by jumping out of the water onto land is not free. In fact, it dies. As soon as we try to become what we're not, far, this is again, this is a quote I read, far from enjoying freedom, we can't expect to flourish. And when it comes to the issue of radical liberty from our created sexuality and gender, gender statistics, again, this is true, this is a fact, Statistics show a rather bleak outcome for people who choose to follow that path of autonomy in their sexual identity. And I don't mean to make light of that, so don't hear me doing that. People who wrestle with that issue, who aren't grounded in the foundation of God and the significance of how they're created, they find themselves in a dark place, and it ends badly much of the time for those people. And it is a sad thing. And it's a sad thing that that has, has been a, a uh, I don't know how to call it, 
how it's playing out in parenting, for example, when you consider the ending for much of these individuals who struggle with their sexual identity. <clears throat> There's a couple um, extra biblical works that I want to encourage you guys to read. Um, some of you know at least one of them. Um, but if you're interested in this, in this topic of you know, sexual identity and the significance of how we're created by God, you should check out the, the book Love Thy Body by Nancy Percy. She talks, she articulates several points really well about the significance of how we're created and how that connects us to God and the role that we get to play because of how, uh, our, how we're created physically. Um, but there's another book that you probably haven't heard of, um, and it's by a guy called, called, named John Wyatt, and it's called Matters of Life and Death, Human Dilemmas in the Light of the Christian Faith. And he talks about this issue of sexual identity, gender. And in his book, he talks about a role we play as we seek to understand and live our lives in a way that honors God, God's intended design for us. And I think it was Josh that a couple years ago, he used a, a similar metaphor in a sermon. I don't even really remember what he's talking about. I just remember the metaphor and the point he was making. But um, in his book, Wyatt talks about Christians as being restorers of art. You guys remember Josh talking about this however long ago, too, this metaphor, how we're called to be um, as, as believers. But John Wyatt, in his book, calls it the art restoration view. Because in the Christian worldview, we're not machines. We're flawed masterpieces, he says. And if you see a work of art and you're asked to restore it, you don't look at it and say, this would look better you know, tagged with spray paint. This would look better with a Supreme sticker slapped on it. <laughs> Just trying to use what's culturally relevant here, guys. Uh, you know, we don't, we don't change the art however we want to as art restorers. That's not what an art restorer does. That's not the discipline they practice. Um, to do that would be to, to, to break their code, to, to not be doing their jobs well. Um, but art restorers respect the work. They respect the artwork and are committed to bringing out the artist's original intention and beauty before it decayed and eroded over time and you know, got marred by whatever. They work at restoring the piece from its flaws. They study the work and the artist so that they can carefully get it back to what it once was as it was meant to be when it was first created. Their work benefits the people around them, helps to uh, facilitate a closer connection to the artist um, and the beauty of, of the art. That's what an art restorer does. And we, to connect it for you guys, we are the, both the art and the art restorer here. We are God's good masterpiece, the pinnacle of his creation, which he stamped and declared as such, as good. Part of that masterful, masterful work is in our biological identity that we are created and blessed in. It's not for us to create. It's not for us to say it would look better like this. It would be better in this. It sounds very freeing to say, you can become what you want to be. That's what the culture encourages. Become what you want to be. Become what you want to be. But our actual identity in that way of thinking is completely invented. It's completely invented, therefore fluid, therefore profoundly unstable when we choose to live that way. And that's where it ends bad, 
right? Because we base our lives, we are, we are creating our own narratives and our own ways of living, and much of the time that ends bad. Most of the time that ends bad, in one way or another. And it's no wonder that as a culture, and individuals within it practicing this uh, worldview, this discipline, suffer from a crisis of identity in so many different ways. And I talked about this last week in Cell Group, maybe actually a couple times over the last couple months in Cell Group. Um, and I don't mean to be crass about it, but uh, outside of the Western world, you know, the culturally progressive world, you know, America and, and, and Western Europe and places like this, Portland, People don't have the time and the luxury to, and the idleness of thought, to ponder these foundational issues, you know? They have much more pressing needs to address, you know? It's because we're idleness in our thought, and it's because we're not grounded in who God is that we choose to let our minds run free and be autonomous in all these different things, sexual identity being absolutely one of the main ones. <clears throat> But here, but here in the culturally progressive places of the world, young people, so I mentioned how this affects your kids, this is happening now, young people are having to consider how to define their sexuality and gender at a really young age. They're being asked in, their, in public school systems, for example, Mariah can speak to this, she talked about it in Cell Group, um, you know, by their 11-year-old by their classmates and by their teachers, are you a boy or a girl? Do you identify this way? Are you gay or lesbian? Are you this or that? You know, at, at this young, young age, this is the conversation. This is the conversation. This is what they're being asked to submit on a form to turn into their classroom, to their teachers, to their schools. You know, are you this or that? So if you think it doesn't apply to you, think again. It's happening now to this young, young audience. They're handing out and soliciting forms and soliciting information to, to, um, to your kids. And again, it's in an effort to make it normative, to help you think that it's, it's normal now, you know, rather than what is biblically normative. You really have to ask yourself and think about, like, the sinister nature of that, really. The sinister nature of um, what's normative now is to completely ignore God. That's what's considered normative now and encouraged to be normative now. To go against God's creation. To be at war with his purpose for us. Be at war with him when it comes to our sexual identity rather than acknowledging him in these things and the blessing that is our biological bodies. That's what's considered normative now. Being at war with God. This insecure and this unstable identity may also be behind the trend for speakers, even secular speakers, you know, teachers, whatever. So people outside of the church that are basing their argument and their worldview on God. These people, so secular speakers, are being canceled, are being uh, doxxed, are being deplatformed are being suspended from their university if they're a college professor for not towing this cultural line. And they're not even coming at it from a biblical standpoint. They're coming at it from a secular standpoint.
world made by a loving God, where identity isn't something that we have to somehow create and chase after for ourselves. Our sexual identity is a given. We're human beings made in the image of God, not random meat bags, you know, now that chance has brought us here, um, who we are, how we identify. We're given, I'd say we're gifted our sexual identity from a loving creator. And you have to ask yourself in what way you treat that gift, you know? What you've come to appreciate about it. We're bodied beings, a gift by our creator. The ancient Greeks, the Gnostics, people like uh, Descartes, all had a low view of body that we have unfortunately returned to or we've been influenced by as a society, as a culture. In a postmodern view that wants to cling to science as a matter of fact over subjective value, it's ironically become feelings which dictate our sexual identity. So the inconsistencies in the worldview really show themselves here, you know? Science matters, facts matters, ultimately. They break off their worldview to chase their feelings. It's a fully inconsistent worldview they hold. We need to recognize that. We need to recognize that so that we can use that as, a, as an entry point in conversation and relationship with them. Feelings, they say, liberate your true self. Feelings liberate your true self. In 1 Corinthians chapter 6, Paul admonishes and, and warns the Corinthian believers um, about sexual sins. Bear with me for a second. He says, don't you realize that your bodies are actually a part of Christ? He talks about, you know, a man taking his body, which is a part of Christ, and joining it to a prostitute. He says, never, never think about it this way. Never do this. Don't you realize that if a man joins himself to a prostitute, he becomes one body with her? For the scriptures say the two are united into one, but the person who is joined to the Lord is one spirit in him. And he says, run from sexual sin. No other sin clearly affects the body as this one does. Sexual immorality is a sin against your own body. Don't you realize your body, your body, your body, there is significance in our physical created bodies. And though he's talking about the misuse of our bodies to engage in sexual sins specifically, the principle he's making is germane. These young believers here in Corinth thought that sex just involved their bodies, so who cares? You know, it's their, it's their soul that matters. You know, their bodies don't actually matter. They had a low view, if any view, of the significance of their physical, physically created selves. But, but Paul is horrified by this kind of thinking, and this is why he's writing to them to not be separating their body from their mind, from their spirit. And he writes to them and admonishes them in that. He strongly opposes any dualism over that kind of thinking, over body and soul. And the psalmist in 139 writes, and it paints a good picture of loving God who created us, who knew us from the beginning. You made all the delicate inner parts of my body and knit me together in the womb. Thank you for making me so wonderfully complex. Your workmanship is marvelous, how well I know it. You watched me. It paints a picture of God's investment in us physically as well as spiritually. His intention for us physically. You saw me before I was born. You knew my life before it happened. Every moment laid out. The problem with sexual identity is also now turning into one of recognizing proper authority in our lives. Back in the early church, it was called Caesar worship. You guys heard of that? Caesar worship. 
the Roman Empire implemented a, a method of maintaining control over the diverse culture that it was, you know, creating. Um, the diverse groups of people and demanding that they put Caesar on par with all of their gods, right? It's a, it's a melting pot. It's a melting pot of people, backgrounds and stuff. And so they create what's called Caesar worship. Not that Caesar was the only god, but that Caesar was on par with the other gods and they needed to treat Caesar as such. Excuse me. Caesar had the same authority. Kaiser Curios was the term that they used. Caesar is Lord. And they would burn a pinch of incense on an altar to the Caesar God. And this was necessary for them to um, carry around a certain document. They had to do this in order to carry around a certain document so that they could literally be free in, in society to you know, live and operate and buy and sell and trade. They had to do this. They had to offer Caesar worship to a false god, they had to burn incense on an altar to a false god in order to just live their lives, right? To be free to do so. Starts to sound pretty stinking close to where our culture is headed. I think. You know, what are we willing to do so that we can just live our lives? What are we willing to give up? Do we see it coming? I don't mean to sound conspiracy theory, but it does sound pretty similar. You know, things are lorded over us. Things are threatened to us. You know, we, yeah, I'm not going to go there. <laughs> you can see it happening. You can see it happening because of the split from what is biblically normative and what is true in who God is and how we're created. You know, failure to address someone by their preferred pronoun puts you at great risk. Again, I mentioned Mariah. She has to consider her role in this school system now, you know, what she's willing to submit to, what she's willing to encourage as a normal part of interaction with kids, you know, or her, her coworkers, what she's willing to promote, right? What you're willing to promote. Where do you draw the line? The question is that, where do you draw the line? When, when, when is it that the culture is forcing you to burn that pinch of incense when it comes to sexual identity? When does the society force you to relegate the authority of God and how we're created in favor of, you know, autonomy and, and submitting and promoting and encouraging autonomy? When does culturally normative sexual identity trump God's created intention? I don't say this, you know, James was making a joke to me before I started. You know, I, I hope to learn something about my sexual identity because, you know, it's something I struggle with. He's being facetious and I get that, whatever. But, you know, I don't say this because I necessarily think it's anything most of you guys struggle with, at least currently. I don't think so. Could be wrong. But because there will come a time when you're asked to give something up to toe the cultural line, right? What are you willing to give up? When the governments crack down on you for this kind of thing, what are you willing to submit to or else? What is your response going to be? You know, when the government wants to make mandates about your physical health, what is your response going to be? That's a new thing in the news. The government wants everyone to be vaccinated or else they can leave. 
You see the same thing coming with sexual identity. Teachers who are forced to consider their livelihood if they're not willing to promote a cultural, a, a perverted stance on sexual identity. It's not a matter of if, it's a matter of when. At what point do you stand with the spirit and boldness and say, no, I reject that, you know? I'm not talking about being uh, untactical and being, you know, in a way that's unuseful in society and relationship, but at what point are you willing to say, no, I reject that. I reject that notion. I reject that uh, what you're presenting is true. I will not promote that. And here's what I'm willing to accept because of that. At what point do you, do you um, come to that when it comes to what the culture is trying to present as normative when it comes to sexual identity, biology? What cost are you prepared to pay? The early church suffered a lot for wanting to stand by universal truths, right? A lot of what was going on in the early church, if you read church history, wasn't about major doctrinal issues about who God is, though those existed too, 100%. But it was about what happens when a church goes rogue because they're not submitting to the cultural standards of the day. That was a lot of the early arguments of the church and church leadership. What do you do with those people? The trick... The lie is when the culture says that uh, people should be free to choose and so on and so forth, it, and it quickly turns into to law, you know? Freedom of choice becomes into law. Cultural shifts in standards starts to become law. Submit or else. The lie is that it's unloving to call someone back to God. That's the lie. It's unloving to stand for what is true. It's unloving to stand for God and call someone back to him. Away from their own prideful autonomy. But it's the opposite. And we should be clear on that and we should be good with that. It is a loving act to call someone back to God, to the image they were created in, to the beauty of their physical being the blessing, the gift of their biology, the significance of it, and submission to his authority. That's a loving act. Recognition and restoration of his art. That's a loving act to call someone to. I read a quote uh, last week that says that culture says your psychology is your sexual identity. Let your body be conformed to it. But the Bible says your body is your sexual identity and let your mind be conformed to it. What God has given you. When Christ reinforces the binary, the one man or the man-woman markers for sexual identity as he did in Matthew 19, there's no ambiguity here, guys, in terms of what we should be accepting as true and as a standard for sexual identity. He says to the Pharisees, haven't you read the scriptures? They record that from the beginning, God made them male and female. And he said, this explains why a man leaves his father and a mother and mother and is joined to his wife and the two are united into one. Who has the authority to speak 
on, to speak authoritatively on the issue of sexual identity, if not Christ himself, the creator himself in the flesh. Remember who you ultimately submit to as these issues are flying at you. Remember who you ultimately submit to when you're asked to bend the knee or else. To reject the truth of how man was created, to make concessions for other people's truth based on their feelings. To give way to some man-made perverted identity when it comes to our sexuality is to reject the authority of Christ in your lives. To dismiss it in conversation, you know, as meaningless is to reject the authority of Christ and your life and the lives of people. Start to ponder as we, as we you know, come into the month here <clears throat> and as we have a few weeks to go. Start to ponder and consider the gift of your biological identity as just that, as a gift of how God created you. Start to consider what you can embrace and offer because of that gift. Now, have you ever done that? That's a simple question. Have you ever pondered what is amazing about being who you are as God created you and what you can offer and what that means? It's surprising to know that a lot of people don't really think about that and they just kind of take it for granted. Um, we'll keep going this month. We'll get into some more specifics. Um, as I said, today's an introduction, so here's some questions that you guys can ponder in your cell groups as you break off. Is the one I just said, basically. What aspect of your sexual identity do you most appreciate? What aspect of your sexual identity do you most appreciate? Secondly, what aspect have you had to, uh, to learn to appreciate and to grow in? What aspect do you appreciate and what aspect have you had to learn to appreciate and grow in? Third, how have you wrestled with the significance of your biological identity? In what way? How have the cultural pressures regarding sexual identity affected you? How have you had to navigate those things? I'm sure they do on some level. How have the cultural pressures regarding sexual identity affected you? In relationship, in your job, whatever it is, you know, think about it. And what are you doing or willing to do to restore the biblically normative position when it comes to these things. So let's break and let's talk about those things and uh, I hope the conversation is good and I look forward to going into details in the coming weeks. Thanks.